I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. Uh, today we have with us a good friend and a tremendous artist, Angelbert Matoire. Now his bio starts with his age, but I'm not going to reveal that because I tell his age, then he's going to try to tell my age and we're going to have problems. <laughs> and he's my brother from another mother, so we can't afford to have problems. <laughs> so suffice it to say, he is an American visual artist at the forefront of Afrofuturism. He began his uh, artistic career through Rick Lowe's Project Row Houses in Houston, Texas, and held his first solo exhibition there in 1994. He subsequently moved to Atlanta to study drawing and painting at Atlanta College of Arts. Although a bit of a nomad, having lived in various parts of the world, Angelbert currently splits his time between Houston and Rotterdam. His art explores memory and social history through the lenses of science, philosophy, and religion. He makes use of a wide range of artistic materials, and his work is in the permanent collections of the U.S. Department of State. We won't hold that against him. Houston Museum of Fine Arts, the Charles H. Wright Museum, the African American Museum of Contemporary Art, and a host of other museums, international artists, and I'm honored to call him friend. So Andre Bear, let's start this way. Give us a sense of when you knew you were a visual artist. Well, I think in terms of making things, it hit me early, like, because I've never done anything else. Um, but when I started calling myself an artist, it was around 36. Uh, and it was really because I had like kind of a multi-interest in terms of like what I would discipline myself to focus on at a time. And it became it got to a point where I would just say I was an artist because it fulfilled my my kind of interest in the kind of things that I would build towards um in terms of like seeking color seeking you know seeking material um but i've never done anything else but make uh, what's in my vision what's in my inspiration like seeking it creating it you know what i mean so i would say i started calling myself an artist in my 30s um but i've i've, I've drawn painted sculpted made sound all of that from a really young age it was encouraged um my parents kind of let me have that space for myself so hold so, up a second so it wasn't until your 30s that you called yourself an artist and yes. you're a few years beyond 30 so what yes. were you what were you prior to that point when you said ah i'm an artist how well, would you have described yourself? If I if I was hanging out with you at a coffee shop, hanging out with 25-year-old Angelbert, and I said, dude, what are you? How would you have responded? I would have probably said, I do nothing. 
<laughs> for <laughs> you do nothing. I do nothing. Or I would have said whatever I was working on in the moment. So if I was painting intensely, I'd say oh, I'm a painter. If I was drawing intensely, I'd say oh I'm drawing. If I was making things like you see behind me, like the mirrors and such, I'd say oh I'm a scientist. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I, I, it was really based on these really small focuses. And, and over the years, I realized that was extremely confusing for others and for myself. And when I would say I was an artist, when I started to actually use that as a description of my work and, and my, the way I think or how I would try and share myself with another person in shared reality, I, I, you know, I noticed that artist saying artist worked. It worked for any discrepancy in my personality or in the things I was describing. Um, but for myself, I, I always, I used to think of saying that I was an artist as like a, sh as, as some kind of, um, it, it felt like, it felt like something I was thinking about, but not something that I could host myself in and say that I was. But that's also changed in the art world, right? In terms of being a multidisciplinarian artist. Like, but 15 years ago, saying, "Oh, I'm working on sound uh, as a point, as a as a position in real estate in the art world," like that was like, "Oh, you're a musician, right?" But I'm not a musician because a musician takes on a different level of discipline and a different level of focus for an entirety. Um, but there's an element of this that I'd like to uh, I'd like to linger over for a minute. And, mm -hmm. and so you tell me if this is right, because I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, though. So 25 year old Anjabar sitting in the coffee shop with me describes himself based upon what he's doing in the moment. Yes. Right. So a very different sense of time and how you occupy time. Yes. 30 something year old Anjabar is thinking in terms of a longer sweep of time. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so if you look at all of those individual moments, I'm painting this day. It's it's music this day. Yeah. Right. It's sculpture this day. Twenty five year old is saying, oh, let's just talk in terms of the moment. Yeah. Thirty something exactly. year old Angebert is saying, well, if you look at the full sweep. Yeah. This is what I am. Yeah. Is that I've fair? Become. Yeah. That's, what that's definitely it. Yeah. That's definitely it. Because 22-year-old Anjabert still thought he was a race car driver and would say that to people. Oh, I'm, a dr I'm a racer. I'm a race car driver. <laughs> but, you know, that, you know, that didn't go well. <laughs> As we know, it didn't go well at all. I was able, I kind of saw a moment and it really was spending more time outside of the, outside of the places I was comfortable in terms of like college, Atlanta, uh, mm -hmm. New York, uh, mm -hmm. Houston, California. Like when I started to kind of spend even more time outside of the States, it became, um, it became clear to me that my breath of work and my span mm -hmm. of life up until that point, it was clear to me that saying I was an artist fulfilled all of those things that you would possibly find, you know, 
Um, I, I'm pretty sure, like, when somebody who's into music here finds my sound work, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, what is this? They, they don't, it doesn't approach them as music, you know what I mean? I, it doesn't even approach me as music. But I did spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to write an opera, how to, how to create an opera based on my definition, of how mm-hmm. I want to hear it, or the soundscapes that I wanted to hear in my studio. I had to start to create those things myself. But the moment I started to go down that journey, everything came in alignment with it. So it made sense to say that I was a sound artist, you know, um, because everybody around me were actually musicians and were informing mm-hmm. that work. But it was also making what I was doing in terms of drawing and painting stronger. You know what I mean? So when I yeah. got to yeah. a point where I created enough things to listen to in my own space, I also had um, created a palette um, of sound and tools mental, like mentally that I could work from. The place, like the sound of the place yeah. that I wanted to be in when I was working. So it seems to me, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me that your art, whatever materials you're using, there is something about the work that is value-driven, that is, is trying to make materially real a certain set of values. And I remember you telling me about young Angel Bear and kind of living this out. I remember at one point you, you telling me that there was some good work being done in the community, and so you gave your money. Yes. Right. And without any consideration of what you would do without that money, we're not talking about a few dollars, right? That you just gave that money and said, so there were ways, it seems to me, that your art expresses a certain range of values, but you feel compelled to live that out as well. Yeah. So talk a bit about that, how how that has developed over the years. That, 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 that. I think the moments that you're bringing up, that it was that those are fast, fascinating moments. Somebody made it, a friend of mine, several friends of mine have made the the the, the statement, the comment that I don't um, I don't make plans. Like they're like, oh, you never plan things well, and da da da. But it's interesting because in that kind of state of in between things, sometimes things make themselves more clear for me and how I live, and it was like. During that period of time, I wasn't working. Uh, if we're talking about this early moment where I mm-hmm. did that, because it started to happen more and more. But it was literally like, oh, if we only had this, we could do this with this project. We only had this, we could finish this thing. And it would literally be like, I'm walking down the street, bing, and get a text. I read the text, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to buy that. I'm okay with your amount. It's this amount. And then that's exactly the number that this organization or this uh, group, this community group is asking for. And so for me, it was like about my silence. I was gaining kind of strength of silence, of anonymity, like to be able to do something that few people know about beyond me. I needed it too, right? I needed the silence, uh, but they needed the resources that came from my silence. But I was trying to gain more silence. I was trying to gain more capacity. So it seems to me, if you, if you think in terms of your actions and your productivity, right, what you create mm-hmm. and how you interact, there's something about it that speaks an interest in transformation or redemption. Mm. 
Right. And, and I, I say that in part because what sticks out for me is, is material you use and the way you describe it as the extrament of industry. Yeah. Right? There's a value judgment yeah. in there. Right. It's a polite way of saying the shit that's left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and so there's a value judgment there. And you take these materials and you there's something poetic about it. And, and by poetic, I mean a, a kind of destruction that frees material to tell a different story. Yes. And so you take these materials, you work them against themselves and allow them to tell another story that's related to people who have been marginalized and disregarded, right? So within your art, it seems to me, you're reconstituting the memory, the cultural memory, the personhood, the history of people who have been marginalized and disregarded. And in your interactions with folks, you're also trying to do that. Yes. That makes, that it, makes total sense. I mean, and that's definitely on par. I, um, I definitely, because it wasn't like I was staying within this kind of realm of art to do that. You know what I mean? I really, at, when I think about that, I, I did go far to do mm -hmm. it. Like, you know, even to the point of like going into churches well outside of my, you know, community because I saw these churches were doing something in their community and I would just sit in the back. And eventually, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, they ask what happened. You know what I'm saying? And like, mm -hmm. and I was like sitting there hopefully to be used for that ask, you know? And, and, and I could see it happen, right? Like I saw that, I didn't see the Cadillac get bigger, you know what I'm saying? I saw the building add things <laughs> that were needed, you know what I mean? And like, I remember somebody asked me once, they were like, I think they were like, come go, <laughs> it's an interesting conversation. And he was like, what, what do you do with all the money? What? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, sometimes all the money ain't yours, you know? Sometimes it belongs, like, sometimes you're just passing it along. And sometimes a lot of it is yours, you know? A lot of times that whole position changes too, where you end up somewhere else. And then it's, and then it's obvious that when that part's coming in, what's yours? Or for me, you know, because I was looking at, like you said, the excrement of the industry, like this mm -hmm. extra bit that was creating more chaos. But mm -hmm. I mean, I by me passing it along, it created less chaos. And I and, and I could see the benefit in it at that time. Now I see the benefit yeah. in a different yeah. way, of course. Um, now, dude, that raises a question for me. So how this works out, this interest in redemption and transformation mm -hmm. as as values that kind of transcend time and, and place, I it's, it's obvious how you do that as Angelbert, dude raised in Houston, right? We can follow the checks being written. We can we can follow your presence in this place and that place. But give us a sense of how that works out in terms of your artistic production. What's your process? My, that's that's a good one. The my process, the process of that of the point in which you I think of myself as an artist. That really changed. Like early on, a, a lot of my work was about dreams. You know, because I'm mm -hmm. like one of these people that has reoccurring dreams. Um, I, and I think that's probably normal, you know what I mean? Um, but in my youth, in my younger, I guess I can say periods, I was seeking out these this imagery, bringing this imagery into my work in the best way that I could from these dreams. 
And then at this point in which I started to kind of also call myself an artist, it was it was more about, I call it being in the garden. Um, and that transformation went from being like visions to actual dreams. working with the materials to mutate the materials to fit what they need to be to make a painting. So I feel like I'm doing nothing. Like before I would be aggressively working. Now I feel like I'm working in a mm -hmm. garden, tending to things like watering plants, like, you know, fixing hedges and building up leaves that become other, you know, that become the, the mulch for building another thing. So like all of the process of life in terms of the materials I use is in the cycle inside of my studio. And I, and I see how that's kind of helped my mind for me to, in some ways, care less, but create more deliberately. Care less is more like what I want to be versus what the work has to be. I feel like curators, collectors, like in, in terms of curators, I think that they have a, a job and a vision and a mission that belongs to institution and belongs to their own self-discoveries. Um, but for me, my I think there's an aspect of the work where I have to be still. And it's not about like one place being still, but it's about being still inside of the place in which no, nothing, it's like, it's like the closet idea, like, you know, like Jay-Z going into the studio believing the door cracked, but he's inside. Be in the silence, in the work, in the garden, to be one with the creator. You know what I mean? It's like more of a John Coltrane experience or even Jimi Hendrix like he was the cool thing about Jimi Hendrix is that he was able to do that on the stage more than he did it in his studio in the studio he was a writer but on the stage he was a creator like if you really like look at him as an artist and not as a musician like in his studio sessions he's writing he's building music he's writing all the parts he's like Prince almost uh, but on the stage there's a whole nother thing that's unplanned because his stage is more of his garden. And so it's like, his stage is my studio. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, but let me, so you mentioned Coltrane and you mentioned Hendrix, and I would agree with you. But isn't there also another element there that this sort of creativity, this sort of rebellion comes with cost? Oh yeah, there's a cost. So what, what has been the cost for you? Everything, yeah, everything. Because there are ways in which you could say those two artists, they were consumed by the process. They lost themselves in this process. You have not. Hmm. What constitutes the difference? I haven't. No, not as far as I can you tell. You think I'm good. 
I didn't say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said you haven't lost yourself in this process, right? Because there's that this the flip side of this creativity is the potential of destruction. And and I would say on one level within your art, and and I would think this is where the Afrofuturism comes in. We talk a bit about that in a minute. Within your art, there is a kind of tension that can be uncomfortable for the viewer between redemption and destruction, possibility and demise. And it seems to me within your art that with some of the figures you imagine and create, the way to the the way to remain somewhat intact in that in that tension is to be transformed. Right? These are embodied bodies, but they're not necessarily the type of embodied bodies we're used to seeing walk down Main Street or Kirby or right that these are they they are different and perhaps there's something about that tension like possibly spiritual bodies type of thing you mean yeah that kind of moves between possibilities it, it, it does that does that make some sense yeah, I'm gonna take that silence as no, a no. No, no, it's not that it doesn't make sense. What, <laughs> I, what I'm thinking about is like that is also the thing that I sometimes deal with. But I've learned to like be like, okay, if I'm tending to the garden, what grows in it is a part of its creation, right? Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm tending to the garden. I, I'm, I'm here for a short while, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge what is created but I'll learn the name of the creation. Uh, unpack that for me. Like, cause I, I've also looked at some of my images and said, whoa, whoa you know, like nobody's going to buy this. You know what I mean? But does that mean <laughs> I should destroy it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't see, like, I really don't see anything as being destroyed. Like when I look at like a painting that I've worked on for decades and I know underneath all of those layers is, a possibly hideous to somebody being, but the process of me using the materials that we would call painting, construction, Mm -hmm. has adorned and recreated that image. But I know what's under it. And I know that the thing that's under it has been transformed and also subdued. And so therefore it's a part of the, the power of the object instead of ruled by the object. It's not the face. Let, let's let's drill down a bit. So I've had the good fortune of being in your studio, yeah. right? I, I, I know something about your work. I've written about your work, but many of the listeners have not. So let's take one particular piece. Pick one piece and kind of discuss this, what we've been talking about. Discuss it in terms of a particular piece. Hmm. There's a, a work that I think is, for me, this work was like a foreshadowing. And the work itself was from like a really quick vision I had at like 21 years old. I was literally on an airplane. And I started kind of sketching on some paper. And it was just a group mm-hmm. of um, of 13 images. And they were like insects, animals, and shapes. And it wouldn't go away. 
it, it maintained and, and it started to seem like it was gaining velocity. You know, um, in the way that I was experiencing it, even after getting off the plane, going to bed. So I immediately, the next day, went into the space I was working in and I started the drawings on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And then I had them all. And then I started to assemble them the way I saw them in this dream. And the first one was a piece called The Face of God. And it was made up of a double-headed creature. And it was like one of the first time I kind of created one of these unattractive creatures. And uh, I put it on top of a, a pedestal, um, a throne, so to speak, in the piece. And underneath it was a bull. But the eyes at the top of the piece were made from two doves that were kind of hovering above this creature. But when you stand back, it literally looks like a face with a beard. Um, and then that piece led to unlocking the face of God. And I created another piece called God's Orchestra. Um, and in that piece, God's mm. Orchestra, were the same creatures that were not visible in the face of God drawing because that was more of a drawing and this thing became this painting made up of several literally almost everything I'd had saved for myself that I was like this is good I'm not selling it right it ended up becoming tortured and taken apart to construct this map this giant world that was inside of a composition um, and that was called God's Orchestra and in making it, I started to kind of investigate like my spiritual kind of thing, right? Like, what is it that I really know inside of my belief? And that's what I focused in on the part of the aspect of the portrait of me in that painting. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the entire composition, it was so abstracted that you could tell you, there was no gravity. The entire <laughs> thing was made without gravity. And it was like light. It was the idea of light, but not a light bulb, not an illuminescent room. It was the illuminescence came from the, the lack of gravity. It was the light of weightlessness. Um, and then I started to I started diving into trying to make this portrait, and I slowly I drew myself, and then in drawing myself, I was like I, I used to always dream about this Mercedes when I was a kid. Like it would always come into my dreams, and it started to come back into my dreams. And it was a giant bear, and I ended up having this dream where my father, the bear, finally came to my home in my dream, and my father told me to tell it to leave in the dream. I didn't. Because I was like, it, it was destroying all my enemies. So, right? Like if a kid at school picked on me, the bear in my dream would eat the kid. But in reality, that distance started to happen. Like it was a power of my mind that it was pushing back everything clear in the past for me to make my work. Right? And so, the, and so when that came back, I mean, because I saw the evidence of it as a kid. Like when I started to have these dreams and make these images in these dreams, I started winning awards. I started winning like opportunities to travel abroad and compete with my artwork. And that's when I started to kind of move into this. This is how I met 
people like Rick and Michelle Barnes and Jesse Lott, these, mm-hmm. these kind of local people to Houston in my youth that opened up more, Alvia Warlock, people who opened up more dimensions of where I could go with this focus. And in this focus, because it was coming from these dreams that I could, that were very realistic to me, I was able to really interpret them in a way that had a realism and a futurism and, a, and, a, and one of these kind of ancient past mystic feelings, right? Because it was all, it was a dreamscape. I'm, I'm saying that to say the final part of the, this kind of transition in this work, because this work started in 1998 and I finished the final piece of this trilogy in 2003 and the final piece was a self-portrait called map for entering and exiting the body and so then what i did was i took this giant piece god's orchestra and this other giant drawing called the face of god and i imposed it in my body and then i revisited the figure of me wearing the bear's skin on my body and in my forehead, I had a rhinoceros mm-hmm. tusk, which is from like a Sanufu figure. And so I had the, like mm-hmm. a rhinoceros tusk sticking out of my forehead. And I, I gave myself this kind of intense mouth, right? Because like my whole thing was like, nothing ever goes wrong until I start. When I was younger, I used to always go like, nothing ever goes wrong for me until I start talking. So, <laughs> so I gave myself this mouth that I didn't want to open. I had fangs and things like this. Um, and so I went back and I revisited that drawing as a map for entering and exiting the body because like the mouth and the eyes and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it became this. So I I need to understand this. I need to wrap my mind around it. So there's something about this particular piece, but, but more than just this particular piece that involves the, the subconscious being expressed. Mm But it strikes me it's not just no, that. No, it wasn't for me. So tell me, help me understand the not just that component mm. of it, of that project. What I learned from those three works was that it was kind of on earth as it is in heaven type of concept. Um, like what my heaven is in my mind, like this mm-hmm. thing that it's either achievable or it's already here. Um, and so... But it strikes me that you're not just privileging the subconscious, right? You're not saying the expression of the subconscious is what really matters. There's, it just strikes me as there, as there being too much attention to what is taking place within the context of the social world, right? There's too much there that expresses relationship, family, community, that expresses race and anti-black yeah. racism, right? It, that there, there's, there's that there no, as there's well. there's definitely that there. And, and I think that's yeah. there because that is what the subconscious is processing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think like I'm, I'm in my dreams bringing this dream into this type of mental reality to process it. So then when it comes out, it's coded in my way of understanding myself in it. Not to separate myself from it, but to see myself in it. And to see myself in it, I am wearing 
the the skin of my protector. You know what I mean? I am I am fitted with things okay. to protect my mind. You know what I mean? I'm I, I am fitted also with eyes to see exactly where I should go. I'm, my ears are covered with you know the ears of of another mm-hmm. animal to hear the things that I need to hear to move a certain way with the eyes I have. You know, my hands are fitted. My feet are actually the feet of a creature that I'm, I have a, 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 disp- a nervous and uncomfortable disposition to, the feet of a frog. Uh, like, I can't, st- I don't know what it is about those things, but there's something about the frog that has always, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, like, that's a, that's a hard one, Tony, because I think one of the things that, I think that it, you're right. It's it's completely coded, you know, like the side of town I grew up on, like learning mm-hmm. quite quickly when I started to mix into the art world to say I was from that side of town made people take a breath back and consider if I was a part of, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like mm-hmm. all of those, it, it was like multiple layers of discretion when necessary. And I, but I also mm-hmm. kept realizing that every level of discretion that became apparent to me were also a part of my gravity and my silence. Because in my work, there's no gravity, but it gives me gravity. It gives me some place to walk to. You see what I'm saying? So I'm bringing these things yeah. to Earth. They're, yeah. they're creating gravity for me. So let, let's pause there for a second and let me ask you this question. So, folks, Come and see your solo exhibits, your shows. They walk in a certain way, thinking about the world in a certain way, moving through the world in a certain way, either explicitly or implicitly moving in relationship to a certain set of values and moral codes, right? They come in with this. You want them to leave differently, Hmm. is my assumption, but what? What does that mean? What What do you want people to get out of experiencing your art? How should they be different as a consequence of having experienced your art? I think I think that I really look at what I'm doing now as, as more of a medicine. Like I'm not that interested in, in beautifying someone's house as much as I'm interested in giving them mm-hmm. something that gives them power. You know what I mean? Like I noticed, I, I've, I've started to notice there's some collectors that those things that most people go like, whoa, I can't have that in my house. That's what is that thing? You know what I mean? Like there's something intense about it, repelling maybe. And there's some people who want that. But when I look at the people now, because I have what twenty five years to be able to look more mm-hmm. uh, at, and I see that those people who lived with those more challenging objects, um, they have a different sense and how they operate in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like the people who live with the more challenging objects seem to have a stronger capacity for their movement and shared reality, especially in their purpose. Mm-hmm. And then the people that I've noticed who are able to live with, they want the thing that's beautiful. It's more about adorning their space and their presence. And I noticed that my work started to, I'm starting to see those things in my work as well. And I'm visiting them as simply a gardener, like I'm tending to them, and I'm not. 
I, I, I no longer really go, oh, it, it has to be strong. Like, I have to see it, know exactly. Like if I vision, if, if a drawing comes to me or a painting comes to me, if I make it, it's going to be fast because I saw every aspect. But my work is like rehearsal. I'm sitting, I'm, I'm present to help it come into, I'm like a, I'm, it's giving, the, it's coming out of the birth of the floor. And so. But, but let me, let me, let me stop you right there for a second because you're being very nice. Yeah, I'm trying to. <laughs> right, you're being very nice. I, I don't know why, but you're being very nice. So let me push a little and I'll push this way. I, I get what you're saying. But I also understand that on more than one occasion, you and others have described your work as representing Afrofuturism, right? And, and you can kind of think about Afrofuturism as yeah. a rebellion, right? And that it is, it is a way of thinking and creating that is determined to understand Black life as not being wiped out by anti-Black racism, that Black life and Black people yes. are in the future. That's... Uh, so it seems to me that is a really bold statement concerning your work. So if I think about your work as related to Afrofuturism, and I ask the question again, what should people get out of viewing your art? How should they be changed? It, it seems to me it, it requires a push beyond the nice statement to something perhaps a bit more uncomfortable, a lot of like the core of my work are kind of experiences from my youth that I hold in place because mm -hmm. they were so intensely, it's like I'm living out a script almost, you know what I'm saying? And like the, a lot of the, a lot of the imagery, a lot of the way in which, like now I feel like I'm living the background of that painting God's orchestra like how I built that painting outside of the images that show you what's going on in the future. I'm living the scape, the world that that exists in. And so for me, you know, all of that begins with this kind of idea also about at that later part of my twenties and early part of my thirties, like these meditations that I would have where I, I felt like I was in contact with a, with a, with a future descendant of me. And, um, and the whole <laughs> idea was that this kid was like, the, 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 that he's like seven million years into the future kind of thing, which is like a totally, like it's mm -hmm. almost impossible to conceive. Like, will we even have a son seven million years into the future? But the place I've seen it, I, I've experienced it all through meditation and dreaming of this place that's been a part of my reoccurring dreams since childhood. And I think that that's what's, for me, keeps me going as, a, as an artist, like keeps me in that frame of creativity and somehow the value of the work. Because mm -hmm. in this person's life, what they have is something I made. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.